Good evening. Hope you got your tennis shoes on tonight. I hope I can get this on. There we are. Something broke. I hope it wasn't my hip. We had a great time at the picnic. I thank the Lord for preserving me from a cold. I started getting one Sunday night. I did what you're supposed to do, the human part, your responsibility, gargle, take vitamin C, airborne, and all that, and pray, and the Lord does his part. So, thank the Lord. It's not that I'm opposed to being sick, but it's just the timing of it. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 3. We're just going to get right down to work, so fasten your seatbelt. Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they built the sheep gate, and they sanctified it, and set up the doors of it, even to the tower of Mia, they sanctified it under the tower of Hananiel. Come to the last verse of chapter 3. And between the going up of the corner under the sheep gate, repaired the goldsmiths and the merchants. Let's pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father. We come into your presence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we give thanks for him only because he sacrificed himself for us at Calvary are we here tonight. Only because he rose from the dead and he is the living object of our hope can we be gathered here together. And we long to serve you better, to glorify your name, and to be faithful unto him even until he comes. And we pray that his coming will be soon. As we look at events and the conditions of the world around us, we know that that his coming draws nigh. And we pray to be strengthened by our time of fellowship and the study of your word. We pray that we would know your presence in our midst, for you promised to be with us, Lord. And we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. We don't need to give you permission, but we invite you to touch every single heart present tonight in a way that only you can. Meet with us. Bless us, make us know your presence, and glorify your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the city of San Francisco, by the Golden Gate Bridge, in in an area right there by the bridge, when you're going over toward the Marin Headlands, you know there are some huge bronze plaques. Am I the only one that's ever seen those? Don't look at me like that. What's on those plaques? Anyone here know? You got what? The names of the men who worked on that bridge. The names of all the people who worked on that bridge. They're all on those plaques. Notice it the next time you go over there. You have to park beside the bridge. You can't see it driving over, I don't think. You have to park and... It's right there in that area. They've got the names up there on those plaques of the people who built that bridge. That's what chapter 3 is. Yep. Yep. He did. 
Well, and they put a plaque up in his honor. Wow. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. You got that? In Judges chapter 5, when they went out to fight the enemies of Israel, and they won the battle, at the end of the battle, there's a song, the song of Deborah and of Barak. And in that song, they remember the people who went out to fight and the people who did nothing. Great resolutions of heart among Reuben, for example, for example. But he didn't go out and fight. And others like him. It names the tribes that went out and fought and helped to gain the victory. And it names the ones who sat at home and stayed by their business, whatever their business might have been, their commerce. And there's a curse upon Meroz, who would not go out and help in the battle of the Lord. In the book of Chronicles, there's a tribute, and in 2 Samuel, there's a tribute to David's valiant men. Men who fought for him, who defended him, who took on the enemies of Israel. And it tells about some of their exploits. Who was the chief among them and what he did, who were the, who were the chief three, what they did, and others that names all of those men. You know, when you stop and think about it, all of these little things like this in the scripture, I can think of a lot of things I would like to know that aren't in the scripture. Questions that I'll just have to leave to be answered when I get to heaven. But God in his infinite wisdom chose to put things like this. The names of the people who built the wall and where they worked. And there's a lesson in all of this for us. When you read it, you don't just read it like you read a genealogy and say, oh, well, you know, this, this one had so many children and then he lived such and such an age and he died and the next one you go, okay, la-di-da, la-di-da-di-da, and you just kind of scan over it till you get to the end. Dig in and read it and pay attention to the details and you'll get a blessing. Chapter 3 is telling us that God takes notice of people who do his work. He knows where we are, who we are, and how we work, and what we do and what we don't do. He knows it all, and it's all right here. You need work? There's lots of job opportunities serving the Lord. Ephesians 4.12 tells us in the New Testament that we, the Lord has given gifted people to teach and to train. I'm going to read it to you. Ephesians 4.12. Eleven and twelve, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. The idea of Christian ministry is not to find a man and hire a man and then sit and watch him do everything. That is not the New Testament pattern. You will never find in all of the New Testament one paid hired pastor anywhere. They're not there. The Lord gave men, gifted men, apostles. He speaks of them, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. Because in the body we all have a gift. 
We all have a responsibility. There's something for us to do. And we need to be prepared for that. And he's given people, gifted people, to help us prepare to serve the Lord and to be able to serve the Lord. So when we come to a chapter like this, we see how God, once again, is putting it down in his word and making sure that we notice that he notices. There's work to be done. There's one wall, ten gates, five towers. They're all mentioned here. And in verse 1, we saw the sheet gate. Now, as you're reading this, if you notice it, if you get a little map, and there are some places, I don't know if I gave them a map to project. If you find it, it's up there somewhere in the computer. A map of the wall. But they start at the sheep gate, and they come all the way around. As you read through the chapter, you end up in verse 32. You're back at the sheep gate again. You're right back where you started. So chapter 3 is a walk around the wall as they're building it. You're walking along with Nehemiah, maybe, or whoever, and you're seeing. Now, here's Eliashib and, and those who are with him, and they're building in this place. And you keep walking, you come to the next place, and here's another family. Here's another group, and they're building. And you come to the next place, and here's another one. You walk all the way around the wall until you get back to where you started, and you've noticed everybody who's out there working on the wall. This is what the Lord is doing. There it is. The sheep gate is the, is the upper right where you see the tower of the hundred and the sheep gate. And you're going to come all the way around, come in counterclockwise, come all the way around and you end up back at the sheep gate again. This is what chapter 3 is giving us. There is order. Three things we want to remember about the building of the wall in chapter 3. First of all, order. It's organized. Everybody has a place to work and has his task. Now, the people who are building the wall, those are the ones you see as you're walking around the wall, but somebody's feeding them. Somebody's getting the materials to hand to them, to making them available there at the work. And everything that everybody around there was doing was important in the building of this wall. So there's order. Everybody has a task. There's distribution. We talked about that the other day. They're not all working on the same point in the wall. They're not all piled up at one point and build it all up there and then move on to the next point and build it all up there. They're all distributed around the wall and they're making it come up at the same time. There's participation. Everybody's working. Everybody has his task. And it's doing it except in verse 5. It says, the nobles, the Tekoites, that's from the village of Tekoa. The villagers did the work, but it says, but, remember, but is a word of contrast. Whenever you see it in the scriptures, you know that it's going to contrast something that comes after it with something that went before it. So you have people working, then you have the but, and then you have people not working. The nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. Now, they give the nobles a bad reputation, don't they? Now, they thought they were too good, or, or they didn't want to get their lily-white hands dirty, or whatever it was. We don't know exactly what their issues were, why they didn't work. But in the final analysis, it really isn't important, is it? 
It doesn't matter what the excuse is. The point is they didn't do it. And a good reason for not doing something is not the same thing as having done it. They didn't work. Bottom line, they didn't work. Okay, but let's not uh, put up against the wall to shoot all of the nobles. Because later on in verse 9, next to them repaired Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem. There's a nobleman. There's a ruler repairing. Look down at verse 12. Next to him repaired Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half part of Jerusalem, and his daughters. The weaker sex, they tell us. They're out there with their sleeves rolled up and they're working just like everybody else to get the job done. And the scripture makes careful note of that, doesn't it? Come down to verse 14. But the dung gate repaired Malchiah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of part of Beth Hasarim. He's from one of the villages on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He's a ruler there. But he came in and worked. And you keep going and you have the same thing. In verse 14, you have the same thing. Verse 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, they all mention rulers who also worked on the wall. So we get a lesson from that. There's another thing I want you to notice as you read this chapter, and you'll have to do this, like I said the other day, not just keep reading, but repeat in your reading. Read the chapter. Go back to the beginning. Read it over again. Don't get bored. Don't scan over it. Take the time to read it. Things sink in when you repeat. Read it again. Read it again. Read it again. That's one of the the missing keys to Bible study that a lot of people pass over. They read something once or they hear it once and now they want to hear something else. But if you keep going over it and over it and over it, things begin to come to light or you begin to notice things that you didn't notice in the earlier readings. Look at verse 10. Where are they working? Over against his house. What does that mean? Right in front of his house. He's going to be one of the people living in Jerusalem. Where is he building the wall? By his house. Look at verse 25 or verse 23. Verse 23 has it twice. Look at verse 28. Verse 29. Verse 30. What are we doing here? Repetition. It's like driving it in. He's making a point. They repaired the wall in front of their house. Now, if they don't do a good job, if the enemy comes and attacks the city, where is he going to be able to breach the wall and get in? Right in front of your house. Is that where you want him to come in? Do you want your family, do you want your home, do you want your house to be a weak spot in the wall of separation from the world? Do you want it to be the weak spot where there's not very much defense, where the enemy can easily get in and where he can set up his base of operations? From your house he can breach the wall, get in, and from there he can do his work. Is that what you want? Do you want the enemy to be able to get into the church and ruin it from your house, from your family? 
From your phone, from your email, from your children, from their behavior, from your marriage. Do you want the enemy to be able to come in there? Do your work. Build the wall. The wall is defense. The wall is separation. The wall is testimony. The gates are for controlling the coming and the going. And the towers are for the people who are looking out, watching, keeping watch over the people. The watchman. There's probably somewhere in one of those pictures I gave you also one of the gates with the towers. And if you find that and can put it up, you'll be able to see what I mean by this. But this is the point. Over against his house, by his house, in front of his house, over and over and over again. It says it. Why? Because they were motivated to do the work in front of where they live. Brother, you don't want them coming in at your house. So you put those, those stones in straight, and you mix the mortar well. You don't put too much sand in it, so it's not going to be loose. You mix it well. You fit them well. You make sure that it's, like we would say today, up to code. Not like what happened in Mexico City way back. Oh, that was a couple of decades ago. They had that huge earthquake, and so many people were killed, and buildings were destroyed. And when the inspectors went in later on to find out why there was so much destruction, what did they find? The buildings weren't built to code. You're supposed to have a beam so wide, or a brick so wide, or so many columns of bricks, and they cheated on all of that. They paid for it. It was in the budget. The money went into the pocket. The inferior material or lesser quantity of materials went into the work. And nobody knew it until this started happening. That was the weak spot. I'm telling you, brother, sister, do your work well in front of your house. Don't give the devil a weak spot to work on because of shoddy workmanship in the wall in front of your house. This is how they worked. They were motivated. Remember, you're protecting your family. This is protection from your family. This is protection for your children. And when your family is protected and is a part of the church, the church is protected on that point. And you're actually contributing to the strength or the weakness of the local church by the way you behave in your home and in front of your house. Remember that. These are lessons from chapter 3. So we read... As we see in chapter 3, over and over this word, repaired, builded, and these kind of words. What are they doing? And this is the point we're coming to, and we're going to come back to it now in chapter 4. They did the work. The answer to the enemies who scorned them in chapter 2 is what? To go down there and argue with them? They send an email criticizing you. You send an email or a text message back to them. Criticize them. And they're flying around everywhere. And, of course, that kind of stuff today is even worse, isn't it? Because you just hit um, copy or forward, and pretty soon it's all around the world. And Spurgeon used to say that a lie can go around the world while the truth is still tying up its shoes. That's even more true today. Do the work. Do the work. Build the wall. Never mind what they say. Do the work. And remember, your house is behind that wall. Do it well. Do it for the Lord. Do it for your family. Do it for your brethren. Remember, that's your contribution to the peace, to the sanctity, 
to the happiness, to the protection of the people of God. Do your work well. We come to chapter 4. All these are building, and it looks like at the end of chapter 3, well, everything's going fine. So far, so good. Like the man who fell out of the skyscraper. And as he passed the 22nd floor going down, he said, so far, so good. There was an abrupt stop coming. Everything looks fine at the end of chapter 3, except we had that little bump there where the nobles, that one particular group, weren't working. But the others were, and everyone's working together. And they're doing it with zeal, with fervor, earnestly repairing the wall, like it said in verse 20. But now we come to chapter 4, and here come the problems. Here come the problems. Verse 1, it came to pass that when Sambalat heard that we built the wall, he was wroth, he was angry, that is. It took great indignation and mocked the Jews. He spake before his brethren, the army of Samaria, and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end of it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish which are burned? Why is he saying this? What provoked him to speak to them that way? Well, first of all, we had it, didn't we, back in chapter 2. He was upset because someone came to seek the welfare of the people of God. They weren't opposed to the Jews living there so much as they were opposed to them building a wall of separation and defense and testimony. They weren't so much opposed to the Jews themselves. They were, and they always will be in some way. But at this particular point in time, they weren't complaining about the presence of the Jews. They only complained when they got up and started building that wall. When you mean business with God, the devil means business with you. Alan Redpath wrote this in one of his commentaries. They labored at it so desperately that it looked as if they were trying to do it in a day. It was that spirit which roused the attack of the enemy. He never bothers about half-hearted Christian people. You got that? He never bothers about half-hearted Christian people. But once you are desperate for God and become burdened for the salvation of men, all hell will be upon you. It was a reduced number of people building the wall there, but the devil's got plenty of people that he can use. And sometimes, unfortunately, he even, even works among the professing people of God and finds some of them who perhaps unknowingly, unwittingly, or foolishly allow themselves to be used of him to discourage and even to stop the work of the Lord. And judgment day is coming. And answers will have to be given, not to us but to the Lord for all of those things. I'm going to read you now in the context of chapter 4, something that's been of great encouragement to me over the years. And yes, Adel already has a copy. Bill has a copy. And this copy that I have is for Mike, so you can get see one of them and get it from them if you want it. The Lord has given every man his work. It is his business to do it and the devil's business to hinder him if he can. So surely as God has given you a work to do, Satan will try to hinder you. He may present other things more promising. He may allure you by worldly prospects. He may assault you with slander and torment you with false accusations and set you to work defending your character. Employ even pious persons to lie about you 
editors to assail you, and excellent men to slander you. You may have Pilate and Herod, Annas and Caiaphas all combined against you, and Judas standing by ready to sell you for 30 pieces of silver. And you may wonder why all these things come upon you. Can you not see that the whole thing is brought about through the craft of the devil to draw you off from your work and to hinder your obedience to God? Keep about your work that God has given you. Do not flinch because the lion roars. Do not stop to stone the devil's dogs. Do not fool away your time chasing the devil's rabbits. Keep about your work. Let the liars lie. Let corporations resolve. Let the devil do his worst. But see to it that nothing hinders you from fulfilling the work that God has given you to do. Keep about your work. He has not commanded you to get rich. He has never bid you to defend your character. He has not set you at work to contradict falsehoods about yourself, which Satan and his servants may start to peddle. If you do these things, you will do nothing else. You will be at work for yourself and not for God. Let your aim be as steady as a star. Keep about your work. You may be assaulted, wronged, insulted, slandered, Wounded, rejected, you may be abused by foes and forsaken by friends, despised and rejected of men. But see to it with steadfast determination and unfaltering zeal that you pursue the great purpose of your life. An object of your being until at last you can say, I have finished the work you gave me to do. This is one of the great lessons of the book of Nehemiah. And sometimes when the Lord allows us to go through conflicts and difficulties, trials and discouragements, strife of tongues, as the book of Psalms says, Psalm 31, says the Lord will deliver us from the strife of tongues. That's worse than arrows and swords sometimes. And as we said before, today in our day of Wireless connections and around the world in a second email is even strife of tongues is even worse than before. Sometimes, though, the Lord is trying to teach us one simple lesson to keep our eyes on Him and our minds on Him and on the work He's given us to do, and don't be distracted or discouraged. Don't quit, don't throw in the towel. If the devil can get you to stop because of words that are flying around, then he got you cheap. You hear me? He got you cheap. If somebody else turns away from the Lord and you let that discourage you and cool you off, uh, put out your zeal, take away your love, and you, you draw up in your little clamshell your private Christian and you're no longer a help and a testimony and an encouragement in the church, You know what I say, brother, sister? The devil got you cheap. He didn't even attack you. He got after somebody else and you let yourself get offended. You let yourself get drawn into a third party thing. You let yourself take sides and you got out of it. You got taken out. He got you for free. He got you in a twofer. You know what those are, don't you? A twofer. Two for one. He paid for one. He worked on one and and the other one fell. He said, oh, look at that. A twofer. You're going to be one of those? You're going to do the work. 
In chapter 4, the external conflicts come. In verses 1 to 6, we have anger and scorn. They see them doing the work. Sam Balat, he's the first one he sees them, and he's furious. So he starts criticizing them and ridiculing them and laughing at them in front of his friends. What are these foolish Jews doing? What are these feeble Jews doing? And so Tobiah, who doesn't appear to be the the leader, I mean, he's one of the henchmen there, but Sam Balat appears to be the one who's kind of, uh, like we say in um, Spain, he's the one who carries the, what do you call it here, the baton, the batuta. He's the one directing things. So he speaks first, and Tobiah jumps in there and says, Oh, yeah, if, if, if a fox runs on that wall, it'll knock it over. And they all laugh. They think they're such comedians. They're so proud of themselves and their little smart aleck remarks. Remember this. The Scripture says, Every idle word that a man speaks, he will give account of it in the day of judgment. Our Lord said that in Matthew chapter 12. Be very careful with this muscle. This is the most overdeveloped muscle in the human body. And that's why God put it behind lips and two rows of bars of teeth. (laughs) To keep it in its place. That's why the book of Proverbs talks more about the tongue than nearly anything else. Just read it. Try this experiment. Get the book of Proverbs. Get a piece of paper and a pencil. And just read and note every verse that has anything to say about the mouth, the speech, the tongue, just notice that. You'll be amazed. That's what we call a thematic reading. When you read through a book or a passage looking for a certain theme, noticing a certain theme that it's bringing out. There are a lot of other things in Proverbs. But just do that. Read through it and you'll find this. Well, the Sambalad and Tobiah, they have well-developed tongues, don't they? But they made a mistake, old Tobiah did, in verse 3. He said, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. What's the mistake he made in this verse? What's the mistake he made? There. No way, Jose. That's God's holy city. Those are God's people. They're building that wall because, as the prophet Daniel prophesied, a king was going to command, send forth a commandment for the building of the city and the wall. This is in fulfillment of prophecy. That wall is being built by the will of God. That wall, just stones and mortar, may be insignificant and unimportant to many people, casual lookers on. That wall is very important to God. And to get things right, you've got to look at them from God's perspective, not as a mere human being. You have to look at things from God's perspective. So they made no mistake. That's not their wall. That's God's wall. And what had Nehemiah said at the beginning? We'll build it. How did he say that in chapter 2? Verse 20, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. Sovereignty and responsibility. This is God's wall. This is God's work. And God is going to prosper us, and we're going to build. He sent us to do this, and we're going to do it. So they begin to build. And the people begin to criticize. And they say, their wall, but they made a mistake. How does Nehemiah respond to this? He doesn't say a word to them. You got that? People like to debate. They like to argue. They like to dialogue. 
They like to sit down and have a round table discussion, and maybe more so in, in Spain and in Latin countries than in the United States. Everybody has an opinion and a punto de vista, a point of view. Everybody wants to put in their, their granito de arena, their little grain of sand. Everybody wants to contribute and have something to say about the situation. This is what Nehemiah had to say. Mortar, stone. Mortar, stone. They prayed and they built the wall. They prayed and they built the wall. Hear, O God, he says in verse 4 and verse 5. His answer, his reply to them has these two parts. He prayed and he worked. He didn't talk to them. He didn't get in a debate with them. He didn't feel any need to write them back. Or, or to go out there and have a debate and call a meeting and sit down and argue, 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 argue. And it's like getting on a merry-go-round. You get on and you go round and round and round and round. And then you get off where you got off. You get off where you got on. And the only thing is you're poor for what you paid to get on it. And dizzy now. And that's all. You got nothing. You got nothing. Some people are great at that. Politicians are great at that. Especially in this country. Talk about problems. Talk about building America. Talk about the jobless rate. Talk about this. Talk about the storms. Talk about the safety of the country. Talk, 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 talk. We're tired of talk, aren't we? It's deeds. That's what gets the job done. Work. And so what Nehemiah does, he's not a politician. He prays. Hear, O God, we are despised. He puts it on the Lord. Casting all of your burdens upon him, First Peter 4 says. Casting all of your burdens upon him, for he careth for you. First Peter 5, excuse me. For he careth for you. Throw them on the Lord. Look, Lord, we're despised. That's how you relieve the pressure. Not by arguing. Turn their reproach on their own head. Give them an answer, Lord. Don't cover their iniquity. He says in verse 5, They provoked thee to anger before the builders. They did it publicly. Their reproach and their scorn was out there where the builders on the wall could hear them. Why? Why did they do it that way? They want to discourage them. They want to distract them because their whole point is stop them from building the wall. So when that's what the devil wants to do, and that's his game plan, you have to remember this. Whatever else you do, don't stop the work. Don't stop the work. Don't give the devil... The, the joy or the happiness of seeing himself succeed. There have been times in Christian work when I have kept going just to, like we say in Spanish, para no darle al diablo el gusto. You feel discouraged. Do not let the devil be happy. You feel discouraged. You can't figure your way out of a situation. Or it just seems like you're having a, what we call a racha, a run of, you know, discouraging things, one happens after another, or you preach and there's, there's no, nobody responds. It's like you're talking to stones and you just say, ah, oh, what's the use? Everybody who's in Christian work at one time or another in their life goes into that. Every one of you who serves the Lord and every one of us should serve the Lord, everybody's going to run into things like that sometimes. But don't quit. Don't make the devil's day. Don't make him happy. That's what he wants. He wants you to quit. So that's the one thing you don't do. You don't quit. You pray, and then you work. Verse 6. The people had a mind to work. We prayed, and he says in verse 6, so we built the wall. Ah, they laughed at our wall, so what did we do? We built the wall. They criticized us, so what did we do? We built the wall. 
What's their reply? What is their reply? What did President Clinton say when he was running for office or his, the people on his political committee, his campaign committee? You remember? Does anybody remember that? They kept telling him when he wanted to get off and argue and debate other issues. They kept telling him they had this little card they put up in front of him. And it said, so he could see it, it said, it's the economy, stupid. To keep him on the point of the economy so that he could stay on that point and win the election. It's the economy, stupid. Now, I'm not going to say stupid. But I'm going to say, hey, it's the wall. It's the wall. That's the point. Build the wall. Don't forget. Do the work God gave you to do. Serve the Lord. Don't be a quitter. Don't disappear. Don't go over to the enemy's side. Don't throw in your towel. Don't sit back with your arms crossed and criticize and complain. Do the work. It's the wall, brother. It's the wall, sister. That's what we got to do. We have to do the work the Lord has given us to do. So it says here, so we built the wall. It was joined together to the half thereof. Why? Because the people had a mind to work. The people. Nehemiah didn't say, oh, because, you know, some people when they tell something, I laugh about Dick Vitale sometimes when he gets uh, making his sports commentaries and all. He, all he's, he has to be the bride in every wedding and the dead man in every funeral. Whenever he talks, you know, he's got to say, well, you know, I was with Coach so-and-so, and I did this, and we had this fun, and I said, and I, he's all in the middle of it. He can't just tell the story. It's got to be something that he did. Well, a lot of people are that way. But Nehemiah doesn't mention himself here. He says, we, we built the wall. The people had a mind to work. The Holy Spirit is trying to teach us something here. Listen, let me just speak very frankly, okay, and use first names. Adel, Bill, and Mike are not going to build the wall by themselves. And Sylvia and Jenny. We could name any number of people, faithful brothers and sisters, Brother Dean, Brother Brad. We could name many people. They're not going to build the wall by themselves. The people have a mind to work. It's a work, Ephesians 4.12 says, for the people of God. To perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. 1 Corinthians 7 says the manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone. That's talking about spiritual gifts. Everybody has a function. Everybody, every member of the body of Christ has a function in that body. The people had a mind to work. And so they did it. So we come to the last part of the chapter, verses 7 to 23, and there we see... They, they ramp it up. They turn up the amps. Now it's not just criticizing them. Now it's the threat of attack. They're going to attack them. So it says, when they saw, verse 7, it came to pass in Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabians, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard the walls of Jerusalem were made up. The breaches began to be stopped. They were very angry. They were very wroth. They were terribly upset. Why? Because that's, don't you get it? That's the one thing that really just pushes their button to see the work go on. That's what the devil wants. He wants to stop it. And when he can't do that, he has a fit. Now we say in Spanish, a rabieta. He's very angry. And so he sends them out. They conspired to come and fight against Jerusalem. Okay, if they can't do it with words, 
You're not going to throw in the towel and be discouraged and quit. You're going to let that go by. You're not going to go out and dialogue with them. You're going to get your mortar and get your stones and you're going to build the wall, pray and build the wall, pray and work. Now they're going to attack you. They're not going to go away. I was telling someone earlier today, there was a man who tried to say something good in the church he was in. He always tried to say something good about everybody. No matter, He never would criticize anyone. And finally somebody said to him, listen, brother so-and-so, what have you got to say good about the devil? Well, he thought a minute and finally he said, well, I'll say this for him. He's always on the job. Which actually is not, but it's not really in his favor. But it's true, isn't it? He's always on the job. He's not going to quit. He's not going to back down. So you keep doing the work. What's he going to do? He's going to come back and try again. And now he's intimidating them. But what did they do? Verse 9. We made prayer to our God and we set a watch. What does the New Testament say? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Pray and watch. What does it mean? It's talking about sovereignty and responsibility. You pray to the Lord and you trust in Him, but then you open your eyes and you look to see where the trouble might be coming from. And this is why in the church, in the New Testament church, the Lord doesn't put one man in charge of the church. He gives them overseers, elders, pastors, Those are interchangeable terms that describe the same group of men who are doing the spiritual ministry of keeping watch over the flock of God. Watch and pray. But it's not just them. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, in 1 Peter 4, 7, we're all told to pray and to watch, to have our eyes open and to be careful. Sometimes when, I, when I'm backing a car out, especially if it's one of these that has a lot of headrest in the back and all, it's hard to see, I tell my wife, ask her later, she'll tell you. I tell her, help me look, help me look, because it's hard to see. Two sets of eyes are better than one. You're backing up, you're trying to look in the mirrors and turning around. The older you get, the harder it is to turn around. They look out your side, and I go slow, look, keep looking, keep looking. The more eyes we got looking, the better. If you see something and you don't tell somebody, then you're going to be the weak point where they get in. We're not talking about being criticizers and tattletales. We're talking about people who are spiritually aware of what's going on around them. And it's like the neighborhood watch, you know. If there's something suspicious going on, the best thing you can do is say to the spiritual shepherds, well, this might not be anything but... And tell them what it is that concerned you. And if they tell you it's nothing and don't worry about it, then okay. You did your part. But watch and pray. And the watching starts with the mirror, with your own self, your own life. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, Paul said to Timothy. First of all, you look at your own self. A lot of people are quick to find it in other people, but slow to find it in themselves. Watch and pray, he says. Then we have in verses 10 to 12 the weariness of the people. Why were they weary? The strength of the bearers of the burdens is decayed. What were they doing? Well, they had to bring in the stones and the mix for the mortar and all of those things. And they had to take out the rubble, get it out of the way so they could build. They're tired, he says. There's much rubbish. Yeah, well, that's always true in the Lord's work. There's a lot of rubbish 
to get out of the way. Take out the trash. A lot of rubbish. We're not able to build the wall. Why are they saying this? Why are they weary? Well, they're weary for a couple of reasons. One is because there's a lot to do. And it's, it's difficult carrying bags of sand. After a while, you get tired. Those kind of jobs are tiring. And it's day after day, day after day. This isn't just something you go and do on a weekend or for a couple of hours. They're working from sunrise to sunset. They're tired. But now they have the added difficulty of the pressure, of the fear of the attack of the enemies around them. They're not resting like they should. They're worried about the attack. They're looking over their shoulders and wondering. So this causes what we call weariness and well-doing. Galatians 6 says, Be not weary in well-doing. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your hope in Him. Don't allow the enemy to discourage you. And sometimes you have to say, You need to rest. Now, resting is not the same thing as retiring from the church. But we need to get rest, don't we? There is rest that is laziness, and there is rest that gives time for the body to recompose and to fortify itself so that then you can better serve later. That's the kind of rest we're talking about here. So here they are, worried about their adversaries, verse 12. Or verse 11, our adversary said, you see, they're thinking about it. Uh, they're going to come on us and we don't know where it's coming from. They're worried about what the adversary said. So what does Nehemiah do in answer to this? Look what he does, verse 13. Here's the solution. First of all, he arms them. He arms them. I gave them so- swords and spears and bows. And then he exhorts them in verse 14. And he says, in the middle of the verse, be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and terrible or great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. This is for the Lord. It's for His testimony. But this is for you. You're going to live here. These are your families. These are your brothers and sisters. Fight for it. Defend it. What did Paul say to Timothy? Fight the good fight of faith, he said. And our trouble is a lot of times we get locked up in the fights that we have no business getting in. And for the things we should fight for, we don't. And we consider ourselves generous and merciful. Fight the good fight of faith. They have a city that God gave them. He promised to put his name there. He allowed them to build the temple there. The building of the wall is in fulfillment. The prophecy, there's no doubt that they should be there and be doing this. So he says, when trouble comes and you're in the will of the Lord where you should be, then don't let that move you off the place or away from the work that God gave you to do. Stick it out and turn away the enemy. Don't be afraid, he says. Psalm 34, 4 says, I besought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. There's a way to deal with fear and control it. Take it to the Lord. Commit yourself to Him and trust in Him. And they did it. And they went on and did the work. And He gave them tools, weapons, and then you see in verse 18, He gave them a trumpet. He had the one to sound the trumpet beside Him. Now, we don't have time to go into this. I've got to finish here. But back in Numbers chapter 10, write it down and go read in Numbers chapter 10, the Lord told them to make two silver trumpets. 
And those trumpets were to be blown for the moving of the camp, the, the children of Israel, for the meeting of the camp when they had to come together to meet, and they had an alarm. Another way that they uh, blew them was in alarm, that is, in warning to make the people come together to fight. So he has the man with the trumpet beside him, and he's not going to do like First uh, Corinthians 14 says, if the trumpet make an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? One time in Spain, a friend of mine was in the army doing his military service. It was mandatory back then. And the sergeant came out to the new recruits and said, uh, who here can play a musical instrument? They needed somebody for the trumpet. And, uh, and it was this one fellow who played a little. He said, I can play. Oh, you come over here then. Oh, mi sargento, mi sargento. My sergeant, my sergeant. He said, no, no, come over here. And you take the trumpet and play uh, special reveille. That's called, in Spanish, we call it Diana Floreada. Diana Floreada. You're going to play it. And he said, pero mi sargento, no, no, nada, nada. He's trying to explain to him that he didn't really know. And the man could say, no, no, get up there and play it. So he picked up the trumpet and he went. And that's all he got out. And the sergeant is standing there, you know, in his full military dress and saluting the flag and all this. And this ridiculous sound is coming out of the trumpet. And they're all over there laughing. You know, who's going to go to war like that? Who knows what that is? He can't play reveille. He can't play charge. He can't play retreat. He can't play anything. Make a certain sound. You got a trumpet, make a certain sound. When you hear the sound, he says, come, gather together. This is what we do. And he says in verse 20, and the Lord will fight for us. We come together with our weapons. We stand together. We resist the enemy, but the Lord will fight for us. That's sovereignty and responsibility together. We don't put it all off on God and we don't try to do it all ourselves without him. Finally, verses 21 to 23. So we labored in the work. Are you getting the point of this chapter? Do the work. What is it the devil doesn't want you to do? Okay, you know how to make him an unhappy camper. Do the work. Trust the Lord. Keep your hope and your eyes on the Lord. Stay with the Lord's people and do the work that God has given you to do. So we did the work, he says. We labored in the work. They're laboring in the work. He's got them on turns here from the rising in the morning till the stars appeared. And then in the evening, they slept there within the the half-risen walls of Jerusalem. They stayed there with their weapons. They're working with a weapon in one hand and a tool in the other. A mason's trowel in one hand. And the spear or sword in the other, they're working. And the night shift comes and they sleep there. They're not going to let the enemy overrun them. This is sacrifice. You'd like to be home in your bed. Well, I'm sorry. Sometimes in the work of the Lord, there's sacrifice to be made. And it's everybody's privilege to make those sacrifices for the Lord and for His glory. Not just a few people. There they are. The example of Nehemiah, with this I close, verse 23. Neither I, nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that which everyone put them off for washing. So they did take a bath. Thank the Lord. (laughs) But Nehemiah is putting himself in there. He's an example. Where is he? 
He's not an armchair general. He's not one of these, you see some of these fellows that are football coaches, you know, and they're, they couldn't run 10 yards without collapsing. They're just huge, out of shape people, you know, and they they got these men out there running 100-yard and 50-yard sprints. You know, why don't you get out there and run a few yourself? Nehemiah is not an armchair general. He's not one of these people who can sit back in the church and criticize the shepherds and say what they did, what they should have done, what they should have said, what they didn't do, and blah, 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 and yah, yah, yah. He's out there working. His example is with his hands. His example is he's putting his back into the work. He's working at great personal sacrifice. Where was he in chapter 1? Do you remember when we read chapter 1? It wasn't that long ago. He was in the palace. He was dressed in royal robes and handing the wine to the king. Second only to his majesty. And look at him now. With stones and mortar and his hands are dirty and the sweat's running down his head. And, and he's having to sleep. Who knows how, what arrangements they made to sleep on the ground or on a blanket or under a tarp or whatever. There in Jerusalem while they're building that wall. He's not theoretical. Are you a theoretical Christian? Or are you a practical Christian? Are you a talking Christian? Or a working Christian? There's a great work to be done. And our example is very important. But even in the sports world, they have this saying, don't they? Just do it. Just do it. Do the work. Just do it. And be an example. Paul told Timothy, be an example to the believers. He told Titus, show yourself a pattern for good works. He said um, to the Philippians, to look at him and those who follow him who present themselves a pattern. They are an example to follow. Your example is important because your example, and I'm including me, Your example is either good or bad. There's no such thing as no example. It's either good or bad. If everybody else in the church were just like you, what would this church be like? Think about it. The power of example to build up, to encourage, to go forward, or to discourage people and to distract them and turn them away. May the Lord help us. To remember, it's the work, it's the wall, and to just do it and trust him for the results. Amen.